Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you again uh, today. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with FAC or the pastoral staff, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I am uh, one of the pastors on staff here. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and meet me at uh, Psalm 40. Um, as Josh mentioned earlier, we are going to continue our summer in the Psalms. Uh, so we'll be in Psalm 40 today. It's a little bit of a uh, longer psalm, a little bit more complicated and really difficult to break down. So I'm going to just read the first three verses. Uh, however, we will walk through the entire psalm. Um, and I think to the best of our ability, we can break up this psalm in Four, uh, three different sections uh, with these headers. Uh, verses 1 through 3, we'll see a past deliverance. Verses 4 through 10, a present demonstration. And verses 11 through 17, a future dependence. Um, th- these headers we'll walk through. Look at these as kind of uh, points, plots on a road map uh, as, we, as we walk through. Um, different spots that we're going to stop and take a look. And so with that being said, let's take a look at the first three verses and we'll walk through this together. Um, Psalm 40, 1 through 3. says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And now, Father, I pray as we open up your word that um, we would give you our hearts and our ears, that you would give us open ears and open hearts to be submissive to your word and what it teaches for us, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. If you've paid attention to the news recently, um, you'll know that uh, back on June 23rd, 12 young boys um, from a youth soccer team and their uh, assistant coach traveled into a cave in northern Thailand uh, after a practice match. Now, little did they know, what started off as a thrilling, spelunking expedition uh, soon turned into a life-threatening situation when a monsoon hit the area and flooded their exit. Uh, being about two and a half miles uh, into the cave, their hope for survival was bleak. Incredibly, though, nine days later, On July 2nd, the soccer team was discovered, and this launched a massive week-long operation to rescue this boys, uh, these boys. And the operation um, was extremely difficult and extremely dangerous given the circumstances. Uh, Most of the cave was flooded, and there were some areas that were so tight that the rescuers, the divers, actually couldn't fit through these tight areas with an oxygen tank attached to them. So there was one problem. Uh, There was treacherous terrain throughout the cave. One area in particular, uh, they said, required full climbing gear to be able to get up and over and out. Um, It was extremely dangerous, and it was said that even for the most skilled and experienced diver, this was a challenging and demanding operation. Uh, And sadly, unfortunately, this was proven to be true as uh, one of the Navy SEALs who was delivering supplies actually died during the rescue. Um, After all of this, the difficulty of the circumstance was compounded even further when the rescuers learned that none of the boys actually knew how to swim. This is a terrible situation, um, absolutely hopeless. However, despite the odds, 
this past Tuesday after being trapped for 17 days, all 12 boys and their coach were miraculously rescued from the pit of the earth. One CNN article online starts off by saying that the Thai cave rescue ended in success, but only two weeks ago it all seemed hopeless. This hopeless scenario um, is the picture painted in the first three verses of Psalm 40. It's a picture of utter hopelessness followed by a miraculous rescue and restoration. Uh, David, who we are told wrote this psalm, tells us how he's stuck in a pit, a miry bog. It's a picture of just this muddy, slimy, slippery wetland. And he's in such a rough spot that he's stuck. He can't by uh, his own power release himself from the snare. If he could get out on his own power, he would, right? No sense waiting around if he can, if he can do it. But the struggle that he's experiencing is pretty obvious that he's stuck. He's, he's done for. And so this speaks of the desperation of the moment at hand. And what we really see are two aspects at play, right? Two, two different sides of the same coin show through in this circumstance. The first aspect is how powerful the hold of this pit is how powerful it is. We don't know the uh, literal meaning of the, of the pit. David doesn't give us the literal meaning, and this is probably a good thing uh, because it's through this that we can actually closely identify our own slimy pits that we're in. We, we can identify with him. A, a commentator that I read came up with four pits that we can often fall into that have this type of hold on us, a strong hold. Uh, perhaps it's a pit of sin. Maybe there's a sin in your life, a habitual sin that you're dealing with that's very strong. It's got a very strong hold on you. And it seems like whatever you, you can't stop it. You can't stop from giving in to this sin. Or maybe it's a pit of defeat. I mean, time and time again, it feels like you're on the short end of the stick and that you can't, you can't catch a break. You, you never seem to be the one that gets the job. You never seem to be the one that gets the promotion or the raise or the accolade. You're always on the losing end and you've had enough. You're in this pit of defeat. Or maybe it's a pit of bad habits. Maybe you have got a bad habit. It's not necessarily a sin. Uh, It's not sinful. um, But you are taking certain actions that aren't healthy for you physically, emotionally, spiritually. You know, maybe you keep going back into a relationship that you probably just shouldn't go into. You don't know why you keep going back, but you do, and you're absolutely miserable. Perhaps you have these bad habits that are keeping you bogged down. Or finally, maybe it's a pit of circumstances. Maybe it's nothing that you're doing or have done or brought upon yourself, but you just seem to be stuck in circumstances that weigh heavy on your soul. Perhaps there's health issues. You just can't catch a break. You're done with the ER visits. You're done with the hospital visits. You're done with the surgeries. You just can't, you're just fed up with just the health issues at hand. You're constantly in pain. Or perhaps it's financial in nature. You're looking at today's bill and wondering, how on earth am I going to pay this tomorrow? A pit of circumstances. Um, I have been in all four of those pits at some point in my life. And it is miserable. There's been times in my life I've been in multiple of those pits at once. And if you've ever been in one of those pits, if you've ever been stuck 
by the miry bog, at some point in your life, you realize how hopeless these pits can feel because of how powerful of a hold that they have on you in your life and how much they're affecting you in your life and those around you. That's the first aspect, the first part of the picture that we see. The second aspect, the other part that we see in these opening verses is not only how powerful a hold of the pit has, but how weak David is to save himself, how weak he is. And this should be a great encouragement to us because David was the beloved king of Israel who ruled powerfully and well for 40 years. He was approved by God. He was blessed by God. He was even referred to as a man after God's own heart. He walked closely with God. He was faithful to God. He wrote nearly half of these very Psalms that we're studying, yet he is mired down, unable to save himself because of how weak he is. You know, if you study scripture and you look at David's life, you got to think if there's anybody that can save themselves, it was David. If there's anybody that can get themselves by their own power, by their own strength out of this pit, it would have had to have been David. But he can't. Despite his kingship, despite his stature, despite his wealth, despite his godliness, he's powerless. And so I'm encouraged that even the great David experiences the pit. But I'm also humbled by the fact that if he can't save himself, I don't stand a chance. I don't stand a chance. And so it's in this combination, these two aspects, the firm hold of the pit and the weakness of David that we really see how hopeless the situation is. And unless there's some kind of outside force or influence that is stronger or better than the conditions at hand, David is doomed. And it can't just be any outside force. It has to be one that is bigger, better, and stronger than the situation. And so what does David do, according to our text, uh, when he comes into, in the face of hopelessness? He waits. He doesn't really have another option, right? I mean, he is stuck. And so he does the only thing that he can do at this point is wait. However, he writes how he waited. How did he wait? I waited patiently. You know, we're reminded that while we can't control our circumstances, we can always control our attitude when we face such circumstances. Now, some of us don't wait very well. Some of us wait very poorly. And I was reminded of this um, on Thursday when uh, my wife and I took our children to Mill Creek Mall in an attempt to get a Build-A-Bear. <laughs> now, if you're unfamiliar with what transpired at the mall on Thursday, Build-A-Bear was holding a promotion, a pay-your-age promotion. You could bring your children, and whatever age they were were the amount of dollars that you would spend uh, on a Build-A-Bear. And so my wife and I, doing the math, realized we can get three Build-A-Bears for $10. This sounds like a real parenting win here, doesn't it? So I thought, well, there's probably, there's probably going to be a line. Um, so if it opens at 10, let's get there really early so we can get to the front of the line. And so we arrive at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's supposed to open at 10. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I am a, I am a prepared dad. 
I am feeling real good about myself right now of how prepared I am. We got the kids up. We got them going. And we get into the mall at 9 o'clock. And to my surprise, waiting for me was a line halfway to Ohio. (laughs) And so I get in line, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, let's just... They had already opened. They were letting people in. Let's just see how, how long this takes. You know, let's wait a few minutes and see how fast the line goes. And so after 10 minutes, we moved a mere six inches. I'm pretty sure I saw a turtle walk by us going faster. And you could see the collective groaning and mumbling and grumbling of, of the parents around us. All this to say we didn't get a Build-A-Bear. We left after a half hour when they told they were going to run out of them before we even got there. Uh, but you just saw how people wait poorly. And these are under pleasurable circumstances. right? We were under a roof. We had air conditioning. We were on our way to something good. How poorly we wait, though. How poorly we wait even in the best of situations and how impressive it is when we see that David waited patiently given his circumstances, right? All the more impressive. Wait patiently. He's prepared for the rescue. It's to have the knowledge that help is coming. It's to wait expectantly to wait patiently. It's to be expectant of the rescue And it's assuming that while God may not act quickly by our own standards, his deliverance is always worth it. Whatever you're going through, if you think that God is taking his dear old time, you have to know that it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. It's worth waiting for. And sure enough, God delivered. You know, it says he inclined to me, or better yet, he turned to me. God's attention was riveted. We get this picture of God aggressively turning his attention to the need. And how did God gain, uh, how did David gain God's attention? What does it say? It says that I cried out to him. He, God inclined to me, turned his attention to me and heard my cry. He heard my cry. I cried out and he heard it. My children um, have different kinds of cries. And they can range from very simple to very severe. And as their dad, I can typically decipher the difference between the two. You know, in the easiest sense, you've got the kind of cry where um, you know they're not in any real danger, right? It's probably their sibling just picking on them or something. And my response to that cry is appropriate. I don't even need to move from the couch for that kind of cry, right? It's typically just me yelling at them from across the room like, hey, stop picking on your sister, Right? That's, that's enough. But, but then there's another cry at the under, uh, the other scale, right? At the end of the scale. When I hear this cry, this arrests my attention. This kind of cry, I drop whatever I'm doing and I charge into the next room with anticipation of the bloody mess that I'm going to find, right? This is the type of cry that David lets out to God. He is, he is calling on God. He, it's a severe, life-threatening cry and God hears it and he gives proper attention to it. There have been times in my life where I've been in the pit. But instead of crying out to God, I just complain to others. Instead of calling out to God, I complain. And so let me ask you, as you stand in your pit this very moment, 
When was the last time you persistently called upon God? How often do you call upon God in comparison to the amount that you complain to other people? Because you see crying to him, calling out to him, calling on him is dependence on him. It's, it's because you know he's mighty to save. It's because you know where to find the rescuer and you know that no one else has the power to save. In a sense, when we cry to God, when we call on him, we are glorifying him. We are showing everybody else that we know he's the only one that can save. And so I call on him because I know where my rescuer stands. And then, as David cries, God hears. He turns his attention and he lifts David out of the pit. And not only does he lift him out of the pit, we get this picture of him cleaning David up setting him on solid rock, a firm foundation where his steps are secure. They're no longer slippery. And then he doesn't stop there after his rescue is secure. God puts a new song in his mouth, a new joy, praising something new because old praises, frankly, don't do it justice. And so I proclaim a new song. I tell of the new things that God has done for me. And the purpose of this psalm is testimony Right? He bears testimony to God's goodness, and he fleshes out that testimony in verses 4 through 10. In these verses, we see a present demonstration of David's gratefulness. Because of past deliverance, it has an effect on him. He has a present demonstration of his gratitude, and it can take shape in three, it really takes shape in three different ways as we look at the text. It's kind of all over the place, but if you look at it, you'll see that, uh, first he has David's praise, and then he has David's submission, and then he has David's proclamation. You have my praise, you have my submission, you have my proclamation. Let's take a look. Verses uh, 4 through 5. Follow along with me as I read. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. No, uh, None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In these two verses, we see that God has David's praise. Because of my past deliverance, because you lifted me out of the pit, I give you praise. Uh, verse 4 is essentially a rehash of what we studied last week in Psalm 1, saying blessed or fully satisfied is the one who trusts God instead of uh, following those that chase after a lie. If you want um, more on these two different ways, let me just encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. We don't need to comment anymore on verse 4. Uh, but in verse 5, we see that David speaks of God's wondrous acts. And these deeds, these actions are so great that there's really no way to appropriately describe them. There are no, not enough words in the dictionary to describe God's wonderful deeds, his wonderful ways, the wonders that he has performed. And not only can we not uh, give it justice in our description, but they're too numerous to even count. What David is saying is, God, I will praise you. I am going to attempt to praise you with my mouth, but I'm going to fail because of how great you are. Nothing can compare, and, and I could praise you my entire life, and it would still not live up to your wonderful deeds that, that they've deserved because there's too many of them. 
this verse has to have resonated with the hymn writer who wrote the song, The Love of God. This is one of my favorite verses. It's the, it's the last verse of the song. This is what it says. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on, on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The songwriter is saying, echoes verse 5. It's saying is, hey, we could fill the entire oceans with ink and we could have paper that's stretched across the length of, of the sky. And if every single branch or twig or stalk was a writing utensil, and if every single person was a writer by their occupation, their job was to write, if we had access to the vastness of those resources and attempted to write about the love of God, the wondrous deeds of God, we would drain the ocean of its ink and we would run out of room on its paper because that is how good and amazing and wonderful and powerful God is. They are more than can be told. And so David says, I try. I'm going to try. I'm going to give you my praise. I'm going to try. Because of my past deliverance, I give you my praise. Verses 4 and 5, let's move on to verses 6 through 8. Um, Read it along with me. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In these verses, we see that God has David's submission. And because of my past deliverance, I give you submission. What David is doing in these verses, he's, he's shifting the emphasis from the sacrifice from the sacrificial system, and he's placing the emphasis on the one giving the sacrifice, the condition of the one giving the sacrifice. David recognizes that while God has put in place the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, he is more concerned with a surrendered heart. And we see this, that sacrifice is easily turned into ritual and nothing more. But God wants more than ritual. He wants your open ears. He wants your open heart, your willingness to submit. All this time, as you sit here, you could be giving to God what you think is right, and you could be completely missing the mark. This is what happened to King David's predecessor, King Saul, was it not? In, book, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 15, it explains how Saul uh, mishandles God's instruction He doesn't listen to God's direction in dealing with a foreign power. However, Saul takes these animals and he sacrifices them, completely convinced that he was doing the right thing, that him and God were okay because of the sacrifice. And then Samuel, a prophet of God, chimes in and he responds to Saul uh, in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel saying, you know, he delights more in your obedience, in your submission than he does the sacrifice. 
Notice how he doesn't downplay the sacrifice. God requires the sacrifice. He delights in the, in the sacrifice. However, he delights more in your obedience and your open ears. Obedience takes place over ritual. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 23 when he's addressing the Pharisees. At the Pharisees of that day, they were the religious folk. They were the guys that made all the correct sacrifices. They were the holy ones. They were the ones that followed all the rules. They had it all together. But when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, he refers them to them as whitewashed tombs. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You look really nice on the outside. You clean up really well and you're fooling everybody else. However, I can see your heart and your heart is a tomb. Inside, you're dead. Your heart is like a crypt filled with rotting bones, your whitewashed tombs. The application for us here is clear. We can go through all the motions of what it means to be a Christ follower. We can come to church regularly. We can read our Bibles regularly. We can pray for the meals before we eat them. We can do all of these things, and they're going to look really good to the rest of us. But God is not as concerned as much with those as he is our heart. Don't get me wrong. He delights in those things. He wants you to do those things, but he wants so much more. He wants your submission. He wants your heart. And maybe you sit here and you think, I do all of these things, but I'm not who I say I am because I have yet to willingly submit to God. If we don't offer our submission to God, have we truly celebrated our deliverance from the slimy pit? David recognizes that the only appropriate response to such a great act of deliverance is the the act of pure self-giving. And that's why David writes in verses four to five, you have my praise. And then in verses six to eight, you have my submission. And then finally, in verses nine through 10, you have my proclamation. You have my proclamation. Take a look. Uh, Verse nine, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. In these verses, God has David's proclamation. Because of my deliverance, I give you proclamation. Matthew 12, um, Jesus talks about how it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And David, now willingly having submitted his heart to God, now proclaims the glad news of deliverance. He hasn't restrained it. He hasn't hid it. He won't conceal it. Instead, he proclaims it. You know, having been delivered from the slimy pit, it is a burden on David's heart to tell of his salvation. There's a strong evangelistic focus here, right? It's underlying in these verses. And this isn't out of duty or obligation, but it's out of desire. And it's out of excitement. And it's out of passion. We get excited all the time about other things, right? We, we tell of other people's works or their deeds. Uh, I'm most guilty of this with, uh, in sports, right? I see somebody do something amazing. And what's the first thing I do? I praise it. Oh my goodness. Did you see that? Did you see what he did? No human being should be able to do that. Right. And, and we praise it. And then what do I do next? I tell all my friends about it. 
I'm shooting them off text messages. I'm, I'm sending video of whatever just happened to my friends and I'm explaining them. Isn't this guy amazing? This is, this is wonderful. Did you see this? You've got to see this. Or how about in, in politics? I see this all the time. Your favorite politician does something great and you post about it. Something along the lines of, I don't see the news covering this, right? And we tell of how wonderful and how amazing they are for their wondrous works that they're doing. I wish that we had a zeal for the gospel like we have a zeal for our favorite athlete or political affiliation. I wish we were passionate about making Christ known as we are about other things in our lives. I wish that I would see that God has lifted me up out of the slimy pit, set me on solid ground, and that this alone would stir up a desire in my heart to make his deliverance known. Because there are other people in our lives that are still in the pit, and they are hopeless, and they need rescued. And you know where the rescuer is. You know where the rescue comes from. And so let me address a very select group of people here today. If you are sitting here today uh, out of obligation, maybe your parents make you come or your mother has been nagging you uh, about Jesus. If you're sitting here and you're just sick of hearing about Jesus, uh, let me encourage you that the only reason your mother nags you about Christ is because she has experienced the wonderful works of God. She has experienced firsthand what Jesus has done, and she wants you to experience that as well. She wants you to know that you don't have to be in the pit anymore because there is a rescuer. There is a rescuer, and David saw that. And so through David's present demonstration, he gives praise, he gives submission, He gives his proclamation. And this prepares him for the next section of scripture, the future dependence in the final verses of uh, Psalm, Psalm 40. A future dependence. Past deliverance leads to a present demonstration, which cultivates a future dependence. And it's here that David takes a very odd and really unexpected turn. Let's go ahead and take a look at it. Let's read it together. Verses 11 through 17. As for you, O Lord... You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. We find that David is right back in the thick of it. He's right back in the pit, partly due to his own sin. And we get a picture of his own iniquities overtaking him. And they're like waves crashing down on a a shipwrecked survivor in the ocean. 
And there's too many troubles to count. He says there are more than the hairs on his head. The turmoil is so deep that he can't seem to see past the life-threatening circumstance anymore. He's isolated. He's desperate. He says his heart is failing. You know, he's, he's giving up hope is what's happening. He's saying, I'm drowning and I'm giving up hope. And not only that, but given his vulnerable state, he has enemies are at hand. There are those waiting to snatch away his life, to take advantage of the situation and, and snatch his life away. This is a very odd section of the psalm because David begins with the rescue. He begins being rescued from the miry bog, the pit, and it would feel much more comfortable if the psalm ended in verse 10, wouldn't it? It's much more of a palatable ending, isn't it? You know, to, to say he was rescued and, and, and that was that. But no, David goes out of his way, it seems, to uh, demonstrate, to show us that he's right back into the pit again. This doesn't give us much comfort. However, it does provide us with much truth. This whole section is a way of saying that life, because we live in a broken world, because we live in a fallen world, this life that we live is one of long suffering and long trouble. You will come in and out and back in to seasons of pain and hurt and loss and sin. However, in this moment that David has come to experience, he is reminded of the prior pit of destruction that he was in. And from his own experience, what does he do? He calls on God again. He calls on God. And not only does he call on God, but he has faith that just as God has come through in the past, he will come through again. Notice the great confidence that uh, David exudes as he calls on God. Your mercies will not be restrained from me. Your love and faithfulness will preserve me. What does David do? He's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself of God's perfection and how he will come to the rescue. You know, to David, it doesn't feel very good right now. It doesn't feel like anybody's coming but he preaches to himself and he reminds himself that God's love and goodness will preserve him. As you experience your pits from day to day, from season to season, it's not going to feel good. Christianity isn't a pain-free zone, but you can't let your emotions take captive your mind and lose faith in God. In the midst of those moments, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of suffering, you need to preach yourself. You need to remind yourself that his mercy will not abandon you. You have to tell yourself over and over and over again because your heart, your feelings are powerful. And we overcome those with truth. The truth that God is going to deliver time and time again. So, am I poor and needy? Yes, over and over and over again, daily, I am poor and needy. I am in a constant state of being poor and needy. But do I have a great deliverer? Yes, every single day, I can call upon the great deliverer in God. And while this great deliverer continues to rescue us from our daily plight, how he rescues us from the seasons that we are in pain or suffering. 
we must remember the greatest rescue mission of all time. The greatest rescue mission of all time, the rescue mission of Christ coming down to our pit, a pit of destruction, a pit of sin that we are stuck in, a pit that we are hopeless to escape from on our own strength because his hold is too strong. And having known how hopeless we are, Jesus got his hands dirty and stepped into the pit to rescue us. If you were to follow the news coverage of those young men, those boys being pulled out of the cave in Thailand, if you look at the pictures in the video, you can't help but notice how filthy the the rescuers were, how dirty these guys were coming out. They had no reservations about rescuing these boys, but they came out absolutely filthy. Why? Because they needed to go where the boys were to rescue them. They needed to tread the same mud that the boys were in to rescue them. They had to go the same path. They had to go into the pit. They had to experience what the boys experienced if there was any hope for survival. In the same way, Jesus had to get his hands dirty. He experienced what we experienced. He came to the pit that we're stuck in and he took it on. He took on your sin. He took on your brokenness. He took on your filthiness. He took on your depravity when he went to the cross. And after he died on the cross, he was buried in a pit in the earth, a tomb that was only meant for the dead. And three days later, he burst out of that grave and overcame death itself. And because he rose from the dead, because he overcame death, he made a way for you to get out. You just have to follow him. Grasp onto the rescuer that is Jesus and you will be saved. He is the rescuer. There's nobody else coming. He's the only one that is coming and he's the only one that can come to get you out. And so it's time to grab his hand and follow him out from death into life. You grasp onto this rescuer, you're going to be saved. You're going to be okay. Because he came to draw you up out of the slimy pit of death so that he could set your feet upon rock, making your steps secure. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you that in my own mess, in my own pit that I was in, you drew me out, you called me out, and you pulled me out, and you set me on rock, and that rock being Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today who has not called upon you, today would be the day. I urge you, Lord, that you'd open their ears and open their heart to see that there's life and that life is found in Jesus. I pray that we can make his name known for his deliverance. And I pray, Father, that is in just a few moments as we take our offering, that you would bless that offering and that it would be used to make Christ's name known, that it would be used to make this rescue mission known to the ends of the earth, Lord. Pray that you multiply it and you bless it. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.